Welcome to Fintech Fridays. Oh yeah! A weekly podcast brought to you by the National Crowdfunding and Fintech Association of Canada and Partners. Covering all things fintech, blockchain, P2P, AI, and alternative finance. Hello, everyone. My name is Craig Asano, the founder and CEO of NCFA, welcoming you to episode 41 of Fintech Fridays, a weekly podcast brought to you by NCFA and Partners, where we sit down with the incredible people in the fintech and funding community and talk about trends, product innovations, developments, and challenges. Fintech Fridays is an evolving and innovative educational platform focused on delivering authentic personalities, content, and storytelling on the journey of mainstream adoption of new financial technologies and their impact on the future of finance. We're super excited to welcome our guest today, Donish Youssef, the CEO and co-founder of Zen Shirts, to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me today. Yeah, so let's get... Uh, this uh, interview started, we'd like to divide our podcast time up by, you know, getting into some background about you being an entrepreneur, then we're going to flip over to all things insurance and insure tech. And uh, for the benefit of, of our, our listening audience, we're going to let them know that we're going to wrap up with some rapid fire surprise questions. So how does that sound? Sounds great. Happy to be here. And let's, uh, let's get to it. Okay, so um, Let's just start off with an easy one. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, how has the entrepreneurial journey been for you? Sure. So I was born in the Middle East. I spent about the first 15 years of my life moving around a fair bit. My, my family was such that we moved around pretty much every year or two. And before I went to undergrad, I think I'd been to about 13 schools. So very used to change, used to getting used to new environments. And I, I never thought really I'd be an entrepreneur for me was I went into engineering. I did my MBA. It was a very standard path for lots of people in undergrad. And I started working at a consulting firm. And for the first couple of years, I just loved what I was doing and never thought I would do anything else. I, I was at the time a lifer. Then after a couple of years, I saw a number of my friends launching businesses in different parts of the world. Of course, 98% or so of these startups fail, but there was a lot of learning that they got from those failures. And there's a handful of wild successes that are now publicly traded companies and, and doing amazing things. And I was always intrigued by the ability to control my life, um, have an idea and try, it, try and drive it to success. Um, but I was just honestly quite risk averse. I thought, my thought was, I've spent the last 15 years of my life getting to this job. Why would I give it up now? And one day I flipped that uh, and I said, look, I've spent the last 15 years of my life getting me ready for the next phase, whatever that next phase is. And after a number of attempts and discussions, I finally said, look, if I, if I don't quit my job now and, and try my luck, um, I don't think I ever will because I was about to get married and the responsibilities just grow after that. And so I finally, uh, with a friend, spent three months while still at McKinsey where I was doing consulting work uh, on the weekend, we were, were piloting things. And finally I said, it's worth the risk. Let's quit. Let's quit our jobs and, and give it a try. And that was February 29th, 2016. And I don't know if I could ever go back to a traditional job again, given how much I've loved what I've done thus far. Uh, as hard as it is, it's, it's very rewarding. I love it. So you were an engineer, you're an MBA. I see on your uh, bio that you were a Harvard alumni. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? It seems like, uh, you know, out of reach for most and, and you've done that. Did it better prepare you, do you think, for being an entrepreneur or making that key decision flipping from, you know, I'm, I'm a consultant at McKinsey, I get this great career path, but I'm feeling like I need more control, I need more, more challenges. Like, what, was it Harvard or what was it? Was it all the change in 13 schools growing up? <laughs> it's probably a combination of everything. Who knows what eventually triggered me to do it. Um, I think having done my MBA, I, I was, uh, I understood business a lot more. Um, I, I had a lot of friends that had done it before that actually, you know what, thinking about it, that's probably the thing that did it most having that network of people that have tried the entrepreneurial route uh, and failed and my conversations with them and what they learned and the people that have tried and succeeded having hundreds and hundreds of friends and, and colleagues that have tried different things. That was probably it that gave me the confidence to think maybe I can do it as well. Um, Cause without that, I, I was a very, it was a very standard path that you do engineering. I worked at IBM, you go into consulting and it's a very insular life where a lot of your friends are very much like you. You need to have that network outside of people uh, that have done different things and you can learn from them. So that probably was it. Yeah, absolutely. You often hear the, the quote, you're only as sort of valuable or impactful as your network. So, you know, that's great to hear that echo. So early on in that stage where, you know, you, you hadn't become a, a major success yet. You're looking, uh, assessing, you're feeling confident in, in your capabilities and the time was right. There's a lot of, you know, trends out there. It's never been a better time to start a startup. What was, what else was going through your mind after you left your company? Did you think, oh crap, I totally regret this, lost your paychecks. And, and <laughs> what, what, like, how do you go from there to, now I want to start a company. Did you have that idea right before you yeah. made a decision? Just one reflection on something you said. Um, we're still not a big success. There's still so much more work to be done. Uh, it's an uphill battle for years to come. Uh, we're, we're thankful for where we are, but there's a lot more work left to be done. Um, to your earlier question, um, for I think it was probably 2012, where with another friend, we actually hired a Waterloo co-op, um, a fantastic guy. We put him in an incubator and we had an idea around comparison shopping for services. There's a lot of comparators for products, but not as many for services. And we were both working our full-time jobs. We, we put $5,000 each into this and we said, let's give it a try and see if it gets somewhere. But after the summer, we realized it's just too hard to do it on the side. There's, there's so much that has to be done. We ended up shutting the business. Um, we had a couple thousand dollars left from the 10,000 of seed money. And ever since then, a couple times a year, we go for sushi and we're still trying to spend down that money, whatever's left, uh, even though the business is done. Um, uh, and then late 2015, while I was still a consultant to large insurance companies, there was a, an idea that I was thinking about around business owners and insurance. You can see lots of examples in other countries about home and car insurance and how for the most part, you can just buy it online. And it's a kayak or Expedia-like experience. But in Canada, even home and auto insurance, you couldn't buy online at that time. And even now in 2020, there's only one place where you can buy car insurance online. Whereas in the UK, no one buys 
in any channel other than online today. There's a lot of differences, but that was my thought. Why isn't it that this has happened? And I spoke to a lot of my clients there and told them what I was thinking about. And people said, it's, it's a really, really hard problem, but if someone can solve it, um, that would be a huge thing. And so identifying that they, the incumbents realized that there was a problem to be solved, but weren't convinced that it was solvable. And then on the other hand, uh, speaking to friends of mine that were potential investors and a friend that was going to potentially join me, um, that made it real for me. And for the last, second half of 2015, I had a lot more conversations, convinced that friend of mine, friend of mine to, to quit his job. That gave me the confidence to say, okay, we're, we're actually going to do it. And I still remember February 29th, 2016 was the first full-time day on the job. And I did feel, what have I done? I, I quit my job. We don't have a product. Um, this has to succeed. There, I, I felt like one of those old generals where you land on shore and you burn your ships and you say, the only way for success is to actually make this work. Um, but I think that having quit and feeling like this has to work was really the only thing that made sure we felt like we, we had to do everything in our power to make it work. And there were many nights where I, I thought I made a mistake, including the first version of the product that we launched. Uh, it was horrible. Uh, there's a saying in the startup world, if, if you've taken, what is it? If, you, uh, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've taken too long to release. And I, I was so embarrassed. I didn't want to show my friends. I didn't want to show my family. We tested it with strangers so that we didn't have to feel embarrassed about it. Um, but, but that's just the way we have to start. Wow. Yeah. It's like having an Excel sheet with an old VBA macro button. Hey guys, look what I built. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and it spits out hello world and you're so excited about it, but it's just hello world. Well, uh, it, it kind of gives me goosebumps thinking to the, uh, you know, that key moment doesn't matter what an entrepreneur does, but they know they're doing it right. If they feel that, uh, that pressure, that, you know, question, because if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. And it's, uh, it, it's this, this idea that now once you get out, let's say in a boat and, and out to waters, you, you mentioned something interesting about, you know, you might never be able to go back to say a McKinsey or a large incumbent organization that has a lot of structure. Um, there's this this dichotomy, there's this, this point in time where you start thinking more about iterations and MVPs and value and, and staking your claim as an entrepreneur, which uh, has value to a large incumbent organization that sees that value can work with it within the parameters of large organization. But do you still feel with where you're sort of at, or maybe at the, at that time that you, you could never go back or were you so confident that you thought, you know, even if this fails, I, I have enough, um, you know, cash. I have some resources. I've got this amazing Harvard network. Just want to get more insight into the folks about how to go about making that decision and, and digging in and understanding really what those risks are. Because I think it's, it's case by case, but there's, there's some, some lessons here. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate in some ways that I took a long time to take the plunge. I was in my early 30s, so I'd been working for 10 or so years. I'd saved some money, and I could have gone 18 months or so without getting another paycheck uh, and have been okay. Uh, that helped me. That gave me that courage that, you know, if it doesn't work over the 18 months, 
um, the only thing I would have really lost was that 18 months of cash that I spent. Um, but I was pretty comfortable that I could go back and find another job, whatever that would be. And I probably would have been better equipped to do whatever I did next, given the experience I had. And I always tell myself, I wish I had left my job a few years earlier um, because it's unlikely that the first attempt at art entrepreneurship would succeed. Um, such a high failure rate. We, we, I've been quite fortunate that so far it's been working out. But if this didn't work out, I don't know if I'd have the time or the energy to try again. But if you leave earlier in life, uh, you might have the cycles to do two or three iterations and hopefully hit a home run in one of those. Um, also, when you're younger, you're, you're more amenable to living in your parents' basement and eating ramen noodles and and taking the bus, it's just so much easier to live like that. Um, and that real scrappy feeling, if it translates to the way you do business, there's a lot of value to it. Um, and people that have that grit, that tenacity to just go after it and, and, and get things done, they would be so valuable to any organization that I think someone can, can do that and even fail. Um, there's a high likelihood that some large company would absolutely value it and, and they would do fantastic at, uh, at something else too. Well, you know, at that point in your, your journey, you know, you're in the boat, you must have come up across some pretty monstrous obstacles, you know, in your life because you were transforming that, even though you might be young, willing to eat ramen noodles. Uh, <laughs> you know, what, what, what were the, the major obstacles and how did you overcome it? Or did you, you come up with another plan? Like, what, how did that work? Yeah, so a, a few big obstacles in our early days was around, uh, I think the investor side was okay. Um, we, we convinced them that if there was an opportunity, we would be the ones to figure it out. So the initial investment side was okay. The big challenge, which continues to today, four and a half years in, is convincing the insurance companies that we know what we're doing or that we know enough about what we're doing that we can figure out the rest. Um, and I always thought, I've read this in a couple of books, uh, the, the big upside uh, outcomes at the end are dependent on you being right. Like you're either right or you're wrong. And if you're right, if you're wrong, then you know, maybe the outcome is not for you, but you have to be right. And then at the same time, most people have to think you're wrong. Because if everyone thinks you're right, like you said earlier, things would have already been done and the alpha would have been arbitraged away. And so I had to keep telling myself the fact that people are saying they don't believe us, the fact that uh, we're getting pushback and resistance uh, is a really good sign because it means that we may be on to something. We still have to prove that we're right. At least I've gotten to the point where people think I'm wrong. Um, and so as a, an insurance broker, uh, and we're, we're a technology-enabled broker, we partner with the insurance companies. So continuously trying to convince them to work with us, that we're not out to get them, that we, we were general, uh, genuine value add to the industry and uh, customers want to buy online. That was and continues to be our biggest pain point. Um, also, I'd say roughly every nine months, we're a brand new company. Initially we were two and then we became five and 15 and then 45 and now we're about 105 and 40% of our staff has joined during the COVID lockdown. So there's a rapid growth just in the last six months. So every nine to 12 months, we're a brand new company. Um, all, most of the staff is new, the processes are new, and it's a real balancing act 
between um, keeping that freewheeling spirit that got us here, but having the processes necessary that people know what they're accountable for uh, and that they have enough guidance to do what's right. Um, a, re a really simple example, in the early days, if we had an expense, anyone could just go and buy the printer or buy uh, the monitor that's needed or a keyboard. There's really no questions asked. You, you look around, you do what's right, off you go. We can't do that now as a hundred person company. So now you have to ask your manager, your manager has authority, they have to get approval from finance. We had to put that in place just to be proper about it. So keeping that balancing act of flexibility uh, and process uh, is I'd say probably the second biggest challenge that we we're always trying to balance it and, and do what's right. Mm. Do, do you still as the, the CEO of that ship that you know were were instrumental. You were the story of the creation of Zen Insurance. You took the risks. Do you, do you find that you you make those decisions 50-50 for for you thinking as a startup CEO founder or more I'm I'm the head of the, this company. We're responsible for a hundred staff, and your company has a policy. It has an identity. It has an existence. How do you how do you approach those decisions? Um, certain things I'll have a very strong view and we'll, we'll just, uh, do what I think. Um, that's one of the benefits of being the CEO. If I, if I'm very, feel very strongly about it, we'll do it. But most of the time what we'll do is, um, depending on where the decision lands, there's somebody else that would have the primary accountability for that thing, be it the finance department or HR or sales, they'll, they'll have that primary view. And, uh, if it's something small or mid-sized, they'll just do it. If it's something more meaningful, we'll debate it and we'll, we'll see what, what's the right outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget which book I was reading recently. Um, there's a great analogy. Uh, the, the, the Knights of the Round Table, it was a round table, there, there was no head. So everyone had to sort of come to a decision together. But behind the table, there was a throne. So if the table couldn't decide it, <laughs> the, the one person would, would break the tie at the end. And it's sort of like that for us. I, it's rare that I'd like to break the tie but if there's a log jam and I have a strong point of view, we'll just move forward for the sake of efficiency. Not to say I'll always be right, but it may be better to be wrong and fast than to be right and really slow. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's well said. What, what do you, you know, there's this uh, story here in Canada, I'm sure it's all around many markets and countries around the world, you know, the lack of women leaders or, or, or women in, you know, women founders is also women leaders that are part yeah. of that key internal decision-making roundtable, you know, if, if yeah. you're going to the executive team by decision. It, do you see it as a problem in, in Canada and around? Like, how can we overcome this? And, and there's obviously an incentive to do so. I mean, you roughly have 50% men in the world, 50% women in the world. What's going on? Yeah, it's, it's, it is a problem, I'll say. It definitely is a problem. Uh, the gender balance, uh, is one thing and there's all uh, all other sorts of uh, diversity and inclusion you you want to have a good balance to represent uh, uh, holistically uh, like ha having a well-balanced company essentially from from various metrics it's a uh, it's a lot of debate a lot of discussion um, I'm not sure what the solution is I, ourselves we're not great at the gender balance at the at the senior level it's something we are aware of and we're working on I'd say when you go down to mid management we are better, they'll still have more work to be done. Um, one of the things we've recently done is tracked the applicants that we're getting in 
for all types of roles and looking at the diversity of the applicants and making sure that at a minimum, we are attracting a very diverse range of applicants. So at least we're not shooting ourselves in the foot right at the top of the funnel. Okay. We're then making sure that uh, as much as we can, that all of our evaluation processes, the, even the words that we use in the job descriptions, um, the fact uh, that the people that are participating in the interviews, we want to make sure even from our side, people that are interviewing, they are a diverse group and trying to see is there something we're missing in that conversion funnel from applicants to offer to hire? And we're making a really concerted effort to evaluate ourselves and make sure that we're holding ourselves up to a higher standard. And uh, hopefully uh, things balance out. Uh, personally, I'm not a fan of having hard quotas that you must have X or Y because how, how far do you go with those quotas? We know there are certain best practices and we want to get to that, but we have to fix from the top of the funnel down and, and work towards getting to a nice balanced split. Very smart, very smart cookie. Um, earlier, before that last question, you know, you touched upon COVID, gotta ask it. You know, mm. this, uh, and, and another interesting thing, you talked about every nine months, every 15, whatever it is, you're, you're almost like a chameleon. You, you come out of this shell and you reinvent yourself. With COVID's reinvention, and uh, the size of the company you have with, with 100, do, do you have policies, like are you allowing employees to work remotely uh, permanently or is it a hybrid model? What are the trade-offs? Mm. And then maybe just what, what's the whole, how are you approaching COVID and, and where, like it's not over. We all know it's not over, <laughs> but yes. what, what, what are your thoughts on COVID? Yeah, so we, um, I, I was amazed um, when we when we were planning for COVID, all of our employees have laptops. And my first job was at IBM in 2003 as a, as a co-op or PEY as they called it. And I had a laptop at the time. And I didn't realize that the vast majority of insurance um, employees at either brokerages or insurance companies don't actually have laptops. It's, it's a very desktop culture and a remote token with a VPN hard token. I didn't realize that was the case. Uh, luckily for us, we were started as a digital company. And so for us, uh, technologically, it was very easy. On a Friday morning, we said, all right, that's it. Uh, Trudeau came out, announced a lockdown, and it was declared a pandemic. Everyone was told to go home and not come back. And all people had to do was pick up their laptop and whatever else, and they went home. And we literally, over the coming weeks, um, sent monitors and equipment via Uber to everyone's homes. Because we said, please do not come into the office. And to this day, we've told people, uh, don't come into the office. And in fact, we will never force anyone into the office ever. Uh, if you're not comfortable, work remotely. Um, we are only now starting to allow people back into the office if we, as we created all of the necessary tooling. You have to book a desk. You, we have to get it cleaned. We have to have distancing, one-way paths. All of that we're setting up right now. But I think we are changed forever um, as there are now, there's now somebody living in Vancouver and working here. There's somebody that we hired out of Calgary. We, we've never done that before. We've talked about it, but now we have the ability to hire anywhere in the world and we're going to take advantage of it. We're not confined to the small space in downtown. Um, we also have had to spend a lot of money learning how to onboard employees virtually. We, we have 40% of our staff that has joined 
during COVID. We, we haven't met most of them, yet they have to feel like they're part of the company. They have to learn the culture. They have to work with their colleagues. They have to learn to use all of the tools and on the sales side, learn how to sell insurance and, and manage customers. So we've had to really learn that muscle of how to onboard people and also, unfortunately, offboard people. Um, if we had to part ways with somebody, we, we did it over uh, remotely and five minutes later, we had an Uber waiting outside their home so that they can return the company equipment and the Uber came back to the office and um, off we went. So there's a number of really interesting twists, but I, I believe that this new model is here to say in some way or another. Um, I don't think we're gonna be 100% remote forever, but we'll probably be largely remote forever because it helps us attract talent from anywhere. And um, I think that's the future of our business. And for, for many startups, that's the case. Mm. Yeah, the, the global resourcing is, is critical. I wish in some cases uh, that remoteness, the, the benefit of it could, could hit areas like regulation. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. we're, we're living in a global world. We're digital first. So um, it's We haven't even touched on the regulation side. It's um, something I've thought about. So typically as a business, you buy a general liability policy and that covers you for workers at the office. Now let's say someone's working from home in Calgary and something happens and they're working out of their house. Whose insurance policy covers that? Does there, is it their home or is it the business? Um, mm. or, or if they're flying here and it's, it's partly vacation and partly visiting the office, what happens? All of these questions haven't been answered if they contract COVID uh, and something happens, who's responsible? So all of these regulatory, legal type things will have to go through the courts to get settled before we know uh, where, where things will land. Wow. Is, is there a model there where you could have, you know, like doctors are, are running their own small business, yet they're, they're paid and organized and, and regulated by the government? And mm -hmm. could it be that in Calgary, your employee and, and you know, all over the world, they, they run and, and you give them uh, a pack and a policy and say, here's how to get your business off the ground. And we'll sell you insurance too, <laughs> because we're an insurance company, but you're actually yeah. running your own business and, and you're, you're working as a, as a self-employed model. Uh, you know, that could be interesting because there, there's companies at that size, you, they have to start going through that sort of policy thinking. And, um, very yeah. interesting. Very yeah. Interesting. The, the gig economy is sort of like that. You're anywhere, you log into this platform and you, and you start working. So th there are examples of that already, or you, you go via a staffing firm and the staffing firm helps you with your insurance and payroll and banking. So there's some examples out there uh, that people can latch onto and use. Uh, it's all new to us because for now, everybody has been employees and they've been in downtown Toronto or, or a commuting distance from downtown. Mm -hmm. so we, we have to figure this out as we go. And uh, I've been quite, uh, quite a bit more active on LinkedIn over the last month. And, and I post about our learnings and our experiences and, and my thoughts on insurance. So as we learn more, I'll, I'll be posting stuff online. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Well, I'd like to get in a little deeper into the actual Zensurance, you know, business model. Can you talk to us a little bit about who your primary customers are, the stakeholders, the, the traction, what, what are the latest product innovations? What's going on? Are you just, who are you disrupting? Is it all the incumbents? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so we were, uh, we're, we're, we're the equivalent of a kayak or an Expedia for insurance for businesses. Insur insurance um, can be split into life health benefits. That's one half. And then there's property and casualty. We're in that half. 
and then property and casualty can be split into insurance for people. So your home and your car or your cottage, and then there's insurance for businesses. We're on the business side and specifically on the small business side. And that hasn't changed for like 50 years. You, you still walk into a broker's office or you get on the phone, you get a 15 page document, you fill it in, you fax it over, you go back and forth for, for weeks sometimes. And you often can't pay by credit card. It's, it's cash or check or, or something like that. And it, it amazes me that in 2020, you can't buy a $500 insurance policy online because presumably the incumbents say it's too complicated and it can't be done. But if planes can fly themselves and cars can drive themselves and you, you can buy all kinds of things online, um, why can't you buy a $500 policy online? It's really just data in algorithms applied, decision made, policy issued. And so that's the problem we're solving. And it's, it's not a simple problem for sure. If it was, people would have already done it. Um, but our whole philosophy is there's so many conflicts of interest in the current business. There's so many, so much manual transaction and waste in there. Um, how do we use uh, an advanced platform, a technology platform to eliminate the waste, make the customer actually like the experience to buy insurance as much as possible. Nobody likes buying insurance, but make it as simple as possible and educate them about what they're buying, give them advice as to how to reduce the risk in their business and be that advisor, but in a very digital manner. We're still we still have 50 licensed brokers. If someone wants to get on the phone and talk to us, we can do that. But it's that self-service model where half our customers um, come to us after business hours because they're busy running their business during the day. That would make it easy for them. And on the conflicts of interest, um, we haven't solved all the problems ourselves, but we're looking at it. And there's this really interesting concept of the loyalty penalty uh, where probably and most often the longer you are with the same provider, the more likely it is that you're going to pay more than you need to. Because every year you, they, they bump up the price by 5%, 5% the next year. And for 5%, you really don't do anything. And lo and behold, after a couple of years, you're paying 20% more than you were. But if a brand new customer comes in with the exact same profile, they will be offered a $1,000 policy, whereas you're paying $1,200 uh, only because you've been there for a while and, you, and you're not bothering to shop around. And that's a, a big thing we're trying to solve for by having no difference between the price for a new customer and an existing customer. We're, we're equal across the board and we believe that's the way it should be. <laughs> yeah, when, when I think about the opportunities in InsureTech a number of years ago, uh, this idea of Uberized insurance. Let's not charge a company uh, a standard insurance policy that covers them for a year that looks like the big companies because they're a small company. And let's try mm. to right size. Let's try to Uberize. Let's try to, but is it that technology that allows them through sort of filter by filter and then the, the data side where they can assess the risk and is it more accurate? Like, I, I guess what the question is, how are the products themselves being innovated on as, as opposed to the market? Like the gig economy mm -hmm. is the new trend, but what about those products? Is that where most of the innovation is happening or is it more on the market side? Yeah, it's a great question. I think most of the innovation thus far generally has been happening on the distribution side. How do you buy the product? Um, innovation on the product itself is coming. There are companies out there that have uh, pay per use type insurance uh, or, or different things like that. 
what we have been doing is taking those traditional policies that have been geared towards mid-sized businesses um, that might be 10 or 20 million in revenue. And, um, and if you're buying a policy made for that business, you're going to pay based on that. So what we're trying to do is figure out how do you remake that policy so that it's more geared towards what that small business needs. You take out the stuff that they don't need. You add a few more things that they do need. You right size it, you pay the appropriate amount, uh, but it covers you for what you need. And, and that hasn't been done a whole lot. We're only a year into that journey right now. And we think the product innovation is critical because you can't just take an old school product and put some lipstick on it and sell it online and hope you're successful. You have to innovate from, from the front all the way to the back. But um, so far, most of the, the work has been on the distribution side in general when you look at a, uh, various insurtechs out there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Would it, in, in Canada, insurtech in Canada, can you talk to us a little bit about that? How, how many are, are actively um, pursuing you know, innovation on that product side? And mm -hmm. is it growing? Uh, is, it, is it mostly you know, based here in Ontario? Is it all over the place? What, where's the opportunity? What are the challenges to how do we you know, what does the future growth path look like? Yeah, insurance is a massive industry. It's um, the property and casualty side is 60 billion in revenue per year. Uh, just in Canada, it's 600 billion in North America uh, and a couple trillion in, in the world. It's massive industry, a lot of opportunity. In terms of innovation, unfortunately, in, like in many things in Canada where we are a little bit behind, there aren't too many businesses uh, in InsureTech at scale. Um, and there are, are a handful that are, have raised a couple million dollars in, in doing really interesting things. Um, I think the innovation is following GDP. Ontario's big, BC and Alberta's next. There's some in the, in the Maritimes and the Prairies, but it'll follow GDP. And we're quite excited. I'm, I'm personally very excited every time I see a new startup in the space. We need more people a uh, lot, we need a lot more smart minds trying to figure out how to make it better. And we need enough critical mass to give what we're doing credibility and convince the big guys that there's something to it and they need to rethink their traditional philosophy of if digital doesn't work, it's a traditional business, it's a handshake business um, that people don't want to buy online. The more companies out there knocking on that door, hopefully we convince some of them. Um, but I, I think there's still a lot more work to be done. Many more startups are needed because uh, we, we are behind, fair bit behind the US and a lot behind the UK. The UK is probably uh, amongst the furthest in the world. Why is that? Is that because there's some regulation that's slowing the sort of Canadian adoption and, and interest in the space? Or is it because it's so tightly controlled by incumbents and uh, there, there's no incentive for that change and it's, it's tough to break in? There is some regulation. I don't think that's the reason. Um, if you look at across verticals, we tend to be a very conservative culture here. Um, this has changed in the last few years, but traditionally, if someone wants to convince um, uh, or acquire customers quickly, they'd rather go to the US where people are a bit more of a risk taker. Um, you'll have people sign up and try things. It traditionally hasn't been as much here. We also have a very cozy enterprise culture. You have five banks, three telcos. Um, there isn't that much of a, an incentive for the big folks to really move the needle because it's quite comfortable versus in the US, you have thousands and thousands of banks. Um, 
that has changed, but that probably has a lot to do with it. For the UK and insurance in particular, regulation was a big part of it. It's much more lax, for better or worse, there's arguments on both sides. Uh, in insurance particularly, much more lax on the regulation, which facilitated the rapid rise of auto insurance online. Um, so, but, but Canada is a bit more regulated and the US is much more, particularly when it comes to auto insurance. I mean, we, we have these, a lot of discussions right now about the prospects of open finance, you know, open banking, open, mm -hmm. open X. If and, and when, uh, if that comes down to Canada, I mean, we, we've already seen a number of jurisdictions that were behind, but when that comes down in, in Canada and, and this focus around consumer uh, access to data and the privacy standards, how does that blend into InsureTech? And are you preparing for that uh, eventuality? Will, will that help you, hinder you? What, what do you think? I, I am a huge supporter of that, giving the control of a consumer's data back to the consumer. Uh, and in some ways, encouraging or enforcing the opening of uh, uh, the, the platforms to allow new players to come in and run uh, on the existing rails. No, no one's used the word in, that I've heard open insurance. I'm not <laughs> sure quite what that even means, but uh, anything that is talking about greater transparency, greater control for the end consumer, um, that's what we stand for. And uh, we're, we're big supporters of that. Essentially what we're doing is bringing transparency to products and pricing of commercial insurance to the customer. And we get a lot of pushback from incumbents saying, you're just commoditizing the market. If you make it easy to compare products and pricing, prices come down. Um, and I say, yes, probably. But if that's the only reason you're in business, which is the lack of transparency, you're not running a good business. Let the commodity products trade as commodities. And then you go and add value in other ways. You can buy a Dell machine for 700 bucks, but I, I paid 2000 for my Mac. They do similar things. They're both computers. I can do Zoom calls on, on both. But the Mac just is so much better in many ways and I'm willing to pay more. And I think the same with insurance. If all you're doing is selling a commodity, it deserves a commodity price. Add some more things in it that people are willing to pay for and they will pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, very well, well said. If, if there are a partnership that's out there uh, or investment perhaps, what, what, what is insurance looking, what does insurance need? And, where, where do you see Zensurance as, as well as yourself being in, in five years? So, you know, is there a partner and, and how, do you, how do you get to that next iteration of growth? You, you said earlier on that you, you've had some success, but there's a long way to go. Just want to get into the future a little bit. Sure. Um, uh, COVID has been good to us in many ways. We have a lot more volume than we can even handle. Uh, we had 10 people, 10 new employees start on Monday. We have a bunch more starting. So in, if you had asked me this pre-COVID, I would have said um, the thing that will, uh, one of the things that will help us is connecting to pools of businesses where we can get more customers and learn more from them. That'll always be the case, but it's not the highest priority at this point. For us, it's just um, being more connected to the insurance, uh, insurance company community and sharing more with them what we're doing and figuring out ways to get more insurance companies on our platform. We work with 50 today. There's probably 150 in Canada. So we represent one third of the market. Uh, there's a lot more to be done there. We, as a broker, we support choice. And the more choice we can provide the customer, the better our experience to them. 
And so the future is more insurance companies, more insurance products, more tailored products, uh, and eventually uh, tapping into bigger, bigger and bigger pools of businesses and getting them to, even just to use to learn about insurance, even if they buy elsewhere, that's fine. We want to be that central place where businesses, particularly the smaller businesses, come to learn about managing risks and running a more effective business. Um, if we accomplish that in the next five years, uh, I, I, I will be able to sleep happy every night. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any insurance products specific for the fintech industry that you, you see as a, a potential area of, of interest? Fintech has been a really hard space um, for insurance because of the perceived risk. If you're, if you're, if you're moving money, you're, you're insuring policies, you're issuing mortgages. Um, it was extremely hard. We've been fortunate over the last two months to work with a couple of our partners to come up with insurance products specifically built for the fintech community, be that uh, electronic crime coverage or coverage for the directors, or coverage for uh, your, you make a, a big round of uh, incorrect credit score guesses and you, you lend money that you shouldn't have and your, your algorithm goes haywire. So there's a number of things that we've, we've worked on with a couple of partners uh, geared towards the fintech community. And I think anyone that's beyond a certain level of scale should really consider that product um, just because the, the downside risk is huge. Uh, we had one customer that had some sort of theft uh, digitally and they lost well over a million dollars over it and, and uh, they had insurance and so they were okay. Well, I just think about all these, uh, you know, the automation and the smart contracts and transactions that are happening while everybody's sleeping at night. It's going to be a certain, certainly interesting challenge to, to look at insurance in those automated spaces. But uh, I, I think we're, we're going to start moving into that rapid fire question round. I could talk to you all day, man. This has been <laughs> awesome. Uh, but I know you, you know, you got 10 new people waiting for Ubers at their door to start work. I guess. <laughs> Let's get yeah. into these rapid fire questions. It's like a one word, quick, witty response, you know, not, and, and you can, you can pass it. It's just, you know, let's, let's finish it with some fun here. So you, you ready for, for these rapid fire questions? I, I feel like it's coming whether I'm ready or not. So let's do it. it it's coming and you don't need insurance for <laughs> So here, here you go. What keeps you up at night? Um, keeping people engage all our employees engaged as we double and triple in size and making them feel like they're still at a startup. Nice. What's your favorite book? I just read it. Awesome book. You are what you do by Ben Horowitz. Oh, I don't know that. I'll have to get it. What new technology will transform the future? <laughs> oh, well, what one new technology will transform the future. I, I, I may have to pass on this one. I've, there's so many things I can think of. Right. So what is, so that's a pass. What, what is one piece of advice that you'd give yourself if you went back in a time when you were a university student? Take a lot more risk much earlier in life. Uh, the downside is limited, but the upside could be massive. Uh, not only because you, you could form a company out of it, but the amount that you could learn by taking that risk. Good answer. Good answer. What epic experience in your life will you never forget? Um, closing the first round of funding for Zensurance, uh, the day Trump was elected. <laughs> oh, wow. You won't forget that one, eh? Um, 
Never forget it. I, I should probably add a rapid fire question. Who's going to win the US election? <laughs> <laughs> the American people. The American people. Yeah, which one? <laughs> so last rapid fire question, what motivates you each and every day? Every time we hire a new batch of people, uh, we had a new batch this week, they tell us how excited they are to be with the company and how cool they think what, what we're doing. Um, they, they, that's really inspiring to hear after, after four years, you sort of forget what you're doing and it's day to day, but when someone new comes and, and they make you step back and think, yeah, really, it, it, it is cool what we've all built together. It's not just me, it's the whole team. Um, hearing that every once in a while, makes it all worthwhile. Uh, that's fantastic. Is there any last um, message you want to, to part with the FinTech Fridays audience that are listening here? Uh, there will be many incumbents that are not happy with what you do. Take that as a positive sign um, and just keep plugging away persistence. In my mind, persistence uh, is a huge factor in, in success, not, not necessarily being the smartest or being the most well-connected, just having that grit to keep going and keep going. Um, there's probably a huge correlation between that and success. Very wise words. Well, everyone, uh, that's a wrap, folks. On behalf of the FinTech Fridays podcast, we'd like to thank Donish for joining us on the show. I had a blast. I really enjoyed a convo. Please come back anytime. And before you go, last thing is, can you tell the audience how to get in touch with you? You know, if they have any questions, want to learn more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I've been quite active recently. And then the company Twitter handle, at Zenshirts, uh, I'm plugged into that as well. Okay, everybody, there you have it. If you have any questions, uh, hit up Donish on LinkedIn or check out the, um, the Zen Insurance platform. And I'll, of course, be sure to include the contact information, what we can, as well as his bio and all the links in the show notes. So thanks again, uh, everyone, for joining us on episode 41 with Donish Youssef, the CEO and co-founder of Zen Insurance. If you're new to FinTech Fridays, please check out some of the incredible past episodes on the site. I'm sure you'll be surprised at what you find. We look forward to seeing you next Friday for another episode of FinTech Fridays. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to FinTech Fridays, brought to you by NCFA and Partners. Tune in weekly for the latest FinTech Friday podcast by subscribing to this channel. The National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada is a nonprofit actively engaged with social and investment FinTech sectors around the globe and provides education, research, industry stewardship, services, and networking opportunities to thousands of members and subscribers. For more information, please visit ncfacanada.org. Oh, yeah! 